Let's turn our hearts to the Word of God. The text upon which our teaching is based this morning comes from the Old Testament, and I will explain how all this fits in with Christmas and Advent in just a second, but let's take a look and turn our hearts and worship God by reading his word together. Psalm 96, verses 1 through 13, the psalmist proclaims, O sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all the earth, sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples, for great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice and let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, as we have read your word, we ask now that you would grant us, Holy Spirit, to bless and prosper and set loose your word in our lives. That as I simply herald the good news of Jesus, may Holy Spirit be our teacher, guiding us into all the truth, counseling us in the way we should go, convicting us of our sin, and leading us to behold Christ, the King of kings, in whose name we're forgiven, in whose name we're declared righteous. So, Holy Spirit, we trust you to be our teacher and you to enable us to behold him and to come let us adore him. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let me ask this question of us. What is Christmas all about? What is Advent all about? Let me try to put it in a nutshell. See, when we look at it and we say it's the birth of Jesus Christ, we're taking one event, one event, but we're also reducing and truncating the entire message of Christmas and Advent. The entire message of Christmas and Advent is that it is the coming of Jesus, God's Messiah, into the world, essentially, and I want you to hear this to set everything right. Do you know how much I need to hear that? As sometimes I feel like I have to repent of turning on the news. I don't know about you, but I turn on the news and I go, oh my goodness, I'm depressed again. And then I have to go, what is Christmas about? The fact that Jesus Christ, God's Messiah, is God's solution, listen very carefully, to man's and the world's problem caused by sin. In one sense, the story of Christmas enfolds and encapsulates the story of God and the story of the Bible. See, let me ask you another question. Do you know what the story of the Bible is? Did you even know that the Bible had a story, or is it just doctrines that we pull out? Now, let me make sure. I'm not saying doctrines unimportant, 
But I am saying you only understand doctrine when you put it in the context of the overarching story, the overarching mission of God that he is doing in the world. Doctrine makes no sense divorced from the story of God. You actually misinterpret doctrine, doctrine when you pull it out of the story. To be a disciple of Jesus means you must know the story of God. And the Bible story is the story of God. And it's basically this. We are not the center of the story. God is. It's his story. He's the center of it. He's the center of the universe. And the story essentially, I'm going to use a naughty word for a second, at least in the political sphere, it's the story of empire. Not man's, not the world's, but God's. The Bible is the story of God establishing his kingdom. It's the story of God establishing his empire where he and he alone is king. The story begins with God creating the world to establish his kingdom. In other words, to have the earth ruled and managed. Get this, you want to talk about self-worth and value that mankind has? Mankind is made in the image of God. And basically, that is that we are God's royal representatives to manage the earth in his name as his ambassador, as his representative, to make the earth his home, the place of his special presence. Thus, the essence of what I would call the overarching story or the meta narrative of the Bible. In other words, the story of Christianity is the building of God's kingdom, his realm established on earth, and his realm is the source of what the Bible calls shalom peace, wholeness, health integrity, well-being. Of course, the next phase of the story is that of when everything went wrong with the fall. The fall of the first humans, the fall of the royal representative. In other words, mankind and their representative, Adam, committed mutiny. See, sin is much more than a moral lapse. Sin is tyranny and mutiny. It's revolt, it's uprising, it's insurrection. Their sin was not just a moral failure, but challenged to establish a kingdom opposed to God's kingdom. You realize that's what was going on when the serpent entered the garden. Gave his word as an opposing word to the word of God, tempting the man and the woman to listen to the word of the serpent instead of the word of God. This led to drama in the narrative. What would God do? Remember, it's God's story. The next move is God's. He's the center of it, and he remained committed to his original design and purpose of establishing his kingdom. And so what was needed now was a new representative, a new and second Adam. This was what was promised in that very first gospel promise of a seed, a descendant of the woman through whom redemption, health, restoration, shalom would come. That representative who would eventually be Jesus would complete the work. He would come here again is the story of Christmas, to restore and set everything right. He would come to fulfill and accomplish what God originally purposed and designed, to bring everything back to health and holiness. Christmas celebrates God's coming with the intention of setting everything right, and that is why there is hope. That hope has been set in motion by the advent of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus, that hope will be fulfilled when Jesus returns to consummate, bringing complete 
health and wholeness to everything. And of course, we live in between those ages. We live in between where that has been set in motion, inaugurated and ushered, but not yet fully brought to completion. This morning, we're going to look at Psalm 96. The Lord reigns. He's coming. It's a summons to worship God as king of the world. It's a summons to have hope and the hope of a king. And here's your application question as we work our way through the text this morning. How do you respond to the hope of a king? We live where we've seen that he's come, he's ushered it in, but he's not yet completed. So when the creation says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns, and it talks about the creation basically throwing a party, going nuts. It says he will come. We need to recognize that that is one coming with two stages, an initial and a later, and we live in between those two stages. How do you respond to the hope of a king? The text tells us that there are three ways to respond. There are three ways, all beginning, at least I'm going to use it this way. This is the Presbyterian teacher in me. Three A's. We need to stand in awe of the king of glory. We need to acknowledge the rule of the king of glory. And we need to announce the coming of the king of glory. Awe, acknowledge, and announce. The psalm begins, the first part is to stand in awe. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. Do you recognize that the singing of a song to the Lord is an old tradition among God's people? Are you singing the song of the gospel? So, for example, in the scripture reading that Carl read a few minutes ago, after the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and the Red Sea, they're standing on the shores of the Red Sea about to commence on the wilderness. What did they do? Exodus 15, I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider, he is hurled into the sea. What are they doing? They're telling of his marvelous works. They're proclaiming his salvation. They say, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. They are telling in song of God's salvation. Not only do they sing to the Lord, but the Lord himself is their song. Then if you want a glimpse at the end of history, look at Revelation chapter 14. In Revelation 14 verse 3, and they sang a new song before the throne and before four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 representing the elect of all the ages who had been redeemed from the earth. What do the elect people of God do? They sing. Friends, are you sensing an application here? You may not like to sing. You may not think you sing very well. God is saying you better get used to it. You're going to spend eternity singing. Sing in worship. Sing in the shower. Sing at dinner. Sing to one another. Do you have the song? Yes, I gave you permission to sing in the shower. Some of you caught that. Sing to the Lord a new song. See, what do you have in the psalm? The psalm, they're forever singing this new song. The psalm is used along with, I mean, let me just give you other parts. It was used as parts of Psalm 105, Psalm 106, 1 Chronicles 16. The chronicler, what does he do? He celebrates 
the coming of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, the very presence, the sanctuary of God among the people into the city of Jerusalem, the city of David. And this psalm is used in Israel's worship to celebrate the bringing of the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. We have to remember that the psalms are Hebrew poetry. And I want you to follow this poetry with me for a second. And the classic nature of Hebrew poetry is that of parallelism. And here's what parallelism. Professor at RTS Mark Futado describes it this way. He says, Hebrew parallelism is the art, it's the beauty of saying something similar twice with a difference that in the second line will amplify what's in the first. It expands and it pronounces and it amplifies what's in the first. So for example, look with me at this psalm. Verse one, you've got the first line of the poet. Sing to the Lord a new song. And then he amplifies it in the second. Sing to the Lord, not just the people of God, all the earth. And then verse three, he amplifies it again. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. How? By declaring his glory among the nations. Not just amongst your own, not just amongst your friends, but amongst all the families of the earth, amongst all the peoples of the earth. There's a very practical application here concerning the fear of the Lord, the awe of God, living our lives as lives of worship. See, I want you to notice something. In verse 1, we're commanded to sing the Lord a new song, and then verse 2, we're commanded again to sing the Lord but doing so by proclaiming his salvation day after day. Did you catch that? There's kind of two directions to worship. First, worship is up, upward, singing to the Lord. He's your song. He's your glory. He's your strength. He's the object of your affection. Every ounce of your being, mind engaged, emotions engaged, affections engaged, will engaged. But there's another direction, and that is outward to others specifically to all the peoples, to the nations. Did you catch that? Worship and mission are like hand and glove. They go together. One of the ways we evangelize is by our worship. See, I want you to notice something. First of all, it's day after day. It's not a just come and have a revival meeting, just come and have a conference. It's day after day proclaiming, announcing, telling of his salvation, becoming winsome, learning creative ways to announce the glory of God in your life, what God is doing in your life. Hopefully, the, the gospel of salvation never fades, never loses its glory, its beauty, its power in your life. Are you singing the song of the gospel? See, and this leads to the second thing, and that is to sing the song of the gospel. Praise must be expressed. Nobody says this as well as C.S. Lewis. Nobody puts it as well. This is a fairly lengthy quote, but I want you to listen very carefully to this quote by C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis says, When I first began to draw near to belief in God, and even for some time after, I found a stumbling block in the demand that we should praise God. Still more in the su suggestion that God himself demanded it. We all despise the man who demands continued assurance of his own virtue. But the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows 
into praise. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their fa favorite game. Except where intolerably adverse circumstances interfere, praise almost seems to be inner health made audible. Men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising. Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? Indeed, we cannot help doing it because, and here's the line. I'm going to repeat this. I want you to get this. Praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Let me repeat that. Praise not only expresses something's great, something's good, something's glorious, it completes it. Lewis used all these kind of dated examples a little bit for us, but all you have to do is look at our current world. You ever notice, and I'm saying this as a good thing, how we use Facebook today to complete our praise? I had a wonderful dinner here. I checked in here. I did this. This is good because do you know what you're doing? You're not only expressing the praise of something, you are completing it. And you are completing it by inviting your friends, the world, to join in. Here's the rub. How often do we do that of God? We leave worship. You have not left worship. You have not completed to the praise until you've expressed it to others. The expression of praise completes the enjoyment. That begs the question, are we really worshiping? This is not a suggestion, but a command, sing to the Lord. Maybe we don't have the song of the gospel in our hearts. Maybe we need more of the song of the gospel. Maybe we need to know more of the gospel, which leads us to our second point. Standing in awe of his glory is by acknowledging the rule of his glory. Do we acknowledge the king's rule? Look with me at verse 7. Verse 7 says, ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. What are we to ascribe to the Lord? Very simply, the glory due his name. The glory he deserves. The glory due him. I remember once reading a definition of worship as discovering what God is worth and then responding by giving him what he is worth. Isn't it sad that we sometimes think so many other things are worth so much more? We autom I automatically complete the praise of the New York Giants won, other than they haven't won much lately. That comes automatically to me, completing the praise. Do any of us feel the tragedy of our hearts that it's not so automatic to us to complete the praise of, isn't God great? Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he wonderful? Isn't he glorious? Do we see his beauty in the creation? Do we see his beauty in the love of the fact that he loves us with a love irreversible and irrevocable? Are we caught up in the beauty and we just sang the wonders of his love? Do we complete that praise? 
What does it mean to glorify God? To ascribe to him, to discover what he's worth and respond by giving him what he's worth. Tim Keller, I think, has some wonderful insights into practically what it means to glorify God. And he says, first of all, there's a mental aspect to it. There's a rational aspect to it. You need to recognize the supreme excellence in him. To acknowledge that he's the measure and standard of all things, the best and greatest of beings in the universe. You need to stop and think. There's a rational, think about God as creator, God as author. Did you, did you, the words, did you go slowly and everything in heaven and earth belong to him? He's the owner of all things. But then second, it means volitionally to ascribe ultimate value to him. It is to give him the centrality or priority in our lives. Giving him his due means recognizing his value or worthiness. What is his value? His value is absolute. Greater than any other object that might be worshipped. Greater than our family and our health and our friends and our loved ones and our career and our blessings. In the simplest terms possible, to glorify God means to make him the most important thing in your life. It means everything else is judged and evaluated by whether it enhances or detracts from his honor and your relationship to him. And then lastly, Dr. Keller says that it means emotionally to find your ultimate joy or pleasure in him. To find him your deepest satisfaction. To find in him, see this aspect of glorifying God is to see his beauty. To summarize Dr. Keller's insights, he says to glorify God is not to go to God, mainly to get from God. His help, his forgiveness, his guidance or strength, but it's to get him. Jesus said, this is eternal life, John 17, verse 3. To know God and to know him, meaning Jesus, whom God has sent. Christmas is about what? God sending his son, Jesus, the Messiah, into the world. Jesus said knowing God and knowing Jesus is life. And Jesus has come to bring life and to bring it to the full, to bring it more abundantly. The early church father, Irenaeus, I don't quote every day, do I, from the church fathers, but he put it this way. He said, the glory of God is the human being fully alive. And the life of the human, in other words, the fully be human being fully alive, consists in beholding God. God's glory. Do you believe that God glorifies himself in making you alive? Salvation is what? You were dead in your trespasses and sins, and he has made you. God, who is rich in love and mercy, has made you alive. And he glorifies. He exalts. He's pleased with himself in making you fully alive. And your life consists in beholding that God. Oh, the tragedy that we settle for such lesser things. And the tragedy that we don't even consider that a tragedy. We're so easily satisfied. Glorifying God is not just going to God for what he gives you, but it's going to God for him. And how do we do that? 
the last part, verses 10 to 13, announcing his coming and seeing what his coming is all about. Verse 10 says, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Then all the trees of the forest will sing for joy. They will sing before the Lord for he comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. So many ways this is structurally such a simple psalm. It's divided into three sections, each one with a key word. Verses 1 to 6, the key word is sing. That's where I said the awe of God, the awe of his glory. Verses 7 to 9, the key word is ascribe. Ascribe the Lord to the Lord, the glory to his name. That's why I said it's acknowledging his glory and his rule in your day-to-day life. And the key word in verses 10 to 13 is the word say. Sing, ascribe, and say, or announce. Announce to the world. And this, especially in the poetry of the psalm, is the crescendo. Do you know what a crescendo is? I looked up the word, by the way. By definition, Crescendo is a steady increase in force or intensity. I want you to feel the crescendo of this psalm. Sing to the We would think that the crescendo is sing to the Lord a new song. Oh, that's just beginning it. That's just the beginning. It's kind of here comes the drum beat. It's kind of moving. Sing to the Lord a new song. And then it's moving to the next part of the crescendo. Ascribe to the Lord. Acknowledge his rule. Acknowledge his glory, even that, it's growing. It doesn't even reach its crescendo until here. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The Lord is king. Do you know what he, the Lord is doing to all the other kind of uh, usurpers of his kingship? He's laughing. He's laughing. I love how Eugene Peterson puts it in terms of his paraphrase of these verses. Listen to how he puts it. He says, let's hear it from the sky with the earth joining in. And a huge round of applause from the sea. Let wilderness turn cartwheels. Animals, come dance. Put every tree of the forest in the choir. An extravaganza before God as he comes to set everything right on the earth. Christmas hope. Derek Kidner, one of my favorite commentators on the Psalms, puts it well, and he says, the disastrous freedom of the fall will be replaced by the only perfect freedom, which is serving God. The belief of fallen man, that righteousness, truth, the rule of justice, and the Lord himself are the enemies of joy is outed by this passage. Where God rules his humblest creatures can be themselves. The glory of God is in human beings being fully alive, and you're only fully alive when God rules. Where God is, there is singing. And why this excitement? 
Why this crescendo? Why this extravaganza? You're not interpreting the psalm rightly if you don't see the enormous party, the enormous celebration of the creation. Why? Because the Lord is coming to judge. And the Hebrew word for judge is the word shafat. And the word means to put everything in right order. One commentator put it, shafat designates an action that restores the disturbed order of a community. To judge is to restore health. Now let me ask you this question. And this a little bit gets to the point of why we struggle with expressing praise, why we struggle with ascribing glory. What is your attitude towards judgment? Again, almost like Christmas, almost like the gospel, you know what I'm preaching against in all these things? I'm preaching against reducing all these things. I want us to see the big picture, the holistic nature of the gospel and the holistic nature of judgment and the holistic nature of Christmas. When we view Christmas as only the virgin birth, when we view the gospel as only the forgiveness of sins, and we, when we view judgment as only the judge in the law court saying, you've missed the point, you've reduced it. Judgment is the commitment for God to restore everything to health. See, things in life are not as God originally intended them to be, but as Mark Futado puts it, the king is coming to put all things in right order for the entire created realm. The lion to lay down with the lamb, the infant to play in the cobra hole, shalom and health and well-being, where he will restore everything, where he will make everything right. He will bring absolute health and order and integration and coherence to the world. And yes, the law court is part of that. He will demand a reckoning. He will bring into judgment every secret thing that's ever been done. And how do we respond to that? If you do not believe in, in Jesus, fear is the only normal thing. Because he will demand a reckoning. But if you believe in Jesus, say in just a minute we're going to go to the Lord's Supper. And what is the Lord's Supper? The Lord's Supper is giving us a very visible, tangible sign of what Jesus did in one aspect of the cross, one aspect of Christmas where he took upon himself on the cross, where the judgment, the judicial, the forensic, the covenantal punishment, curse of all of our sin, of all of our transgression, of all of our iniquity fell upon him. So that the declaration of God can be for the people who are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation, not even a hint, not even a breath. And because of that, what is your attitude towards judgment? See, if you are in Jesus, then rejoice. Look forward to the coming judgment because on that day you will stand at the right hand of God. And what will you see? God will not recall your past sins because on the cross Jesus received your record and you received his record. He received your record 
of rebellion, of wickedness, of defensiveness, of insecurity, of doubt, of evil, of selfishness. See, we're so afraid to tell God what's worse. We don't complete our praise, complete the expression of praise, because we need to more deeply understand the implications of the gospel that Jesus has got your complete record and you have received his complete record in the sight of God. Do you know what he sees when he looks at you? He sees only glory. He sees beauty. He sees breathtakingness. Do you sing the song of the gospel? And when you watch the news and when you look at your own life and you pray for your family with cancer and you see your suffering and you see yourself, do you see, do you recognize, this is why Romans 8 says, the entire creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. Think of the day when there's no more famines, no more earthquakes, no more oil spills, no more terrorism, no more tsunamis, no more racism, no more sex trafficking, no more oppression, no more bribery, no more injustice, no more hatred. Advent is Christmas hope, joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth and let Spruce Creek Church receive and live for her king. Father, I pray that your reigning would just reverberate in our hearts daily. And some of the reverberation is that we would feel its lament and feel the sadness that the world is not yet fully set right, but that we wouldn't be so despairing as to look at only the hurt and the suffering in the world, but we would recognize that you rule, that you've already come to usher in, to begin, to inaugurate your kingdom, that you've begun the work of setting us right. And what is your work? You're making us, what does it mean to be sanctified? It is that you're making us more and more human each and every day, fully alive to you. So, Lord, as we come and as we take your supper now, may we truly taste and see that you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.